We continuously cross thresholds in our lives. A beginning, a change. Before we weren't, now we are. We transverse a physical threshold when entering a building, a room, or a town. When we enter a community, a relationship, an experience. We step over a threshold as we enter a clinic, go for a test. When the doctor or nurse enters the room or responds to a text. When we call our insurance company. When somebody asks, how are you? We cross a threshold when we feel a lump, hear a diagnosis, throw up, panic, feel pain, or fall. Before we didn't, now we do. Thresholds can be barriers or opportunities, or they can be barriers and opportunities. Crossing a threshold can present us with limitless possibilities. Who knows what might happen? Anticipation, excitement, hope. Some thresholds upset our sense of balance, our inertia. Why me? Distraction, hopelessness, annoyance, frustration, fatigue, even rage. Crossing a threshold can energize or suck energy, depending on the moment and perspective. Welcome to the fourth episode in a series about emerging adults with mental illness. We had an introduction. We met Emma Kachima and his mom, Erica Blair. They shared a story of fear, hope, and recovery. You can find the introductory episode and Emika and Erica on my website, health-hats.com slash pod, with links to the YouTube versions. My friend Sue Donnelly introduced me to her niece, Annie Schneider, a recently emerging adult with mental illness. When Annie and I met, I felt disoriented, as I don't associate bubbly and major depression. What do I know? Annie readily agreed to record a chat with me. She lives in Sunshine City, more formally known as St. Petersburg, Florida, with her boyfriend and a blue Quaker parrot. She enjoys writing, watching documentaries, eating chicken pod thai, and taking her coffee black. Annie works as a content creator and copywriter at a small marketing agency downtown. Notice Annie talks about thresholds, abrupt and slow simmering, home, hospital, and school. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Loon, a two-legged, cisgender, old white man of privilege who knows a little bit about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. We will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of health care. Let's make some sense of all of this. Annie Schneider, thank you for joining us. I'm delighted that you're here. Of course. How did you experience that something was wrong 
seriously wrong. To be honest with myself and my story, I always had felt a little different. But my parents actually came to me to talk to me about my health and kind of getting me on like a journey of figuring out what I'm going through. And I remember it happened like the summer when I was, I believe, 15. I feel a little bit badly because my parents aren't here to share their side of the story. But from what I can remember when I was 15, over 10 years ago, things were not right. And I was not, I was not really my best self in just a lot of ways. And I was struggling a lot. And I think my parents noticed it in me first, but eventually I very quickly saw a lot of it. I was really unfocused in school. I had quick temper. I had just a lot going on that was not healthy. When we're teenagers, of course, you have your mood swings and all kinds Mm -hmm. of normal things that we're all humans, but I was not like other 15 year olds. I had a lot of preoccupation and obsession with like negative thoughts and negative thought patterns and unfocused in school. Later on, I find out from my mom, she of course didn't tell me in the moment, but later on I found out I had a very like glassed over, glazed over look on my face and in my eyes a lot of the time. I didn't have a lot of, I know it sounds kind of cliche and kind of dumb, but I just didn't have a lot of my spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, I was kind of a shell of myself starting at 15 at least that was when it turned into like a healthcare journey to recover and get well. You're describing going on in your life and you're doing what you're doing and sometimes you're miserable and sometimes you're not miserable. Sometimes life is okay. I'm just interested in that self-realization part of it. It's really hard for me to relate. Like... Recently, I took a medication that made me so despondent. And I was like, oh, my God. I said to Anne's my wife, you know, something is wrong. This is not me. But that was like dramatic. Yeah. Something dramatic changed. Something acute, yeah. On the other hand, if things are slowly deteriorating, Mm -hmm. um, Sometimes it's hard to know, the hard to see that and self-reflect. Yeah. So was it when your parents said something to you that you began to like self-reflect? I'm 26 now and I have a really easy, almost like a hypersensitive experience when I know something's not right in my body or in my mind now. But when I was 15, I think I was just thinking that like life was just like this. Okay. Yeah. It, it wasn't an acute experience. Yes. I think what you're saying, like you took a medication and so you were mm. very like, whoa, I feel different. Right. Um, it was not an acute experience. It was a slow simmering. Something's yeah. not okay. My brain's not firing in the healthy ways yeah. that it needs to be firing. Was there like a place where you started to feel, oh, this could be helping me. This is helping me. I am feeling better. What was that like? Oh, absolutely. It's very weird that it 
it's hard for me to remember a moment in time mm-hmm. to realize I wasn't well. Yeah. But I definitely can remember the moments where I realized, oh my God, this helps, or oh my God, I'm feeling really good. And it's it goes to show you like you don't really know if something's wrong until something gets fixed or you don't have something anymore. Contrast is amazing, isn't it? And and then you're like, I've been feeling this way all this time. And all I had to do was X, Y, Z. So I can remember very specific times and situations that I realized something was helping and making me feel much better. But I Mm -hmm. can't remember a moment when I started to not feel well. I've taken all kinds of medications before. And some medications did help. And so that would be noticeable. Some medications didn't really do much for me. The journey with medication is very up and down when you're figuring out something that's working for you. I've probably tried maybe nearly 10 different types of medication. But as soon as we realized something wasn't working, don't take it anymore. Figure out something else. Therapy is something that always made me feel better after. It still makes me feel better when I go now. I think treatment makes you think of like a surgery or a medication, but there's a lot of like treatments that after the fact, you realize that it really helps. Um, Were you like really despondent and then you got a diagnosis of depression? Your doctors want to get paid, so they have to put a a label on it and so that they can bill for it. Um, What is that? Yeah. A lot of the symptoms that I was showing, I was very much textbook depression. I was a little bit hyperactive, a little bit, now you use the word manic, but I definitely was more heavy in depressive symptoms. Um, Fit that like a perfect puzzle piece. But I got the diagnosis of bipolar 2. The generic understanding of bipolar is the equivalent ups and downs of mania and depression. Your mania is up here and your depression is down here and it's a big wave. Bipolar 2 is still bipolar disorder. There's still manic episodes, but they are much, much more smaller and less severe and also less frequent. And the depression is what is the more serious piece of it. That was my diagnosis. So we treated it a lot like treating the depressive episodes, but also mood stabilizing. I tried taking antidepressants when I was younger. They actually really didn't do much on me because I didn't have clinical depression. Mood stabilizing medications take my waves from being like this and they give mm-hmm. me more normal. I don't want to mm-hmm. use the word Maybe normal is not the. No, normal. The human condition is variable. The big waves that if I'm, if I'm not taking care of myself, it takes me more down to what other average people who don't have a mood disorder exhibit. So it seems like you say a lot, we. Is we, you and your parents, or is there a larger team when you say we? Yeah. I guess I'm not realizing that I'm saying we, but I I think because I do have such a supportive and loving family, I think we is the word I'm going for. And especially Mm -hmm. because I was young, like when all of this was coming to fruition. So very much still part of my family unit, like in an integral 
but yeah, my, my team, I'm extremely fortunate that I had such a team when I was younger. And then later on in my, in my hospitalization, my team included my fabulous psychiatrist who I actually was so sad when I grew too old to see him anymore mm-hmm. and had to go to an adult doctor, but um, he works at a children's hospital. And when you turn 22 or 23, they're like, eh, you got to go. But he was incredible. And he's known me since I was probably younger than 15, maybe 11, 12. And then my therapist, who also is still my therapist. So he's also known me for a very large part of my life. When you're the age that I was at, when all these things were happening, you're at school just as much as adults are at work. Your school team is just as much always there. There's such a large part of your life. So the guidance counselor at school, she was really important to me at the time and still is important to me and my story. Then my parents, all of them together, really looking after me. And I was just in such a funk. To people that don't understand how depression feels, I always describe it as feeling underwater. Mm. It's like you, and maybe other people would describe their experience like that too. But for me, that's the best way to describe it because it's like you're underwater And you want so badly to get out of the water and everything above you, like you can see the world around you, but things are like blurry and you don't even really hear the same sounds that you would Mm -hmm. if you were above water. Not literally, but just that notion of you're in the world, but then you're not, you're underwater. I still describe it that way. Very descriptive. Thank you. Yeah. So while I was underwater, if I'm going to use that expression, and because I was at the age that I'm at, I had a lot of caretakers that all have been so important to me. And now that I'm 26, I still would call them my team, but (laughs) I'm very much more of an adult now who understands my body probably even more than if I hadn't gone through what I had gone through. And I I do still see a psychiatrist just for regular check-ins. I don't see my therapist regularly, but if I'm going through something where I feel like my mental health is starting to tank, I go, hey, you want to talk? And so I still have a team, but it's less hands-on, less intensive because I, I was a teenager at the time yeah. and I was not on my own. I did not, did not have the wherewithal, I guess, to, to all of this alone. Did you have friends at this time? And I guess I would say, let's define friends. On the one hand, peers that sort of got you and cared about you, and were there for you. And then there's peers who don't. What was that experience? Like people you went to school with, or I don't know if you went to church or whatever, wherever you went. Yeah, I, it's really interesting. And it, it might even be peculiar. Although I was not, not quite, my fullest self at this time during high school and I was not well and I was underwater (laughs) and all those things. I actually did have quite a normal, healthy social life. I had a lot of the same friends that I had for years and years. I was dating. My social life was not really actually impacted. I I don't know if maybe you'd ask my friends today if maybe they noticed (laughs) that I was off or something. I've actually never really talked about it (laughs) with them, gone back to those times really, but it's funny. It's until someone points out to you that something wasn't right. Maybe you didn't even realize it. Cause you're like, this mm-hmm. is just my normal. 
I did not have like enemies or bullies. I'm very fortunate that I did not face anything like that. So those kinds of things were not detrimental to my mental health yeah. situation. When I was hospitalized, a lot of the girls that I housed with there, although we had really distinct situations, and I think I talked about that with you last time we mm -hmm. talked, but there was a camaraderie there because we all were in this place that was uncomfortable and scary and intimidating. And we were doing hard work, exploring ourselves and our health. I didn't come out of it with friends per se, but people that I really bonded deeply with because we were all going through something life-changing together. I want to define clearly for everyone listening that this isn't going to the hospital and like laying in a bed and I'm hooked up to cords and machines. It was like a behavioral rehabilitation kind of hospital. It's it's kind of like a little campus. There's like mm -hmm. dorms and there's a place where you eat together. And I was in school while I was there. I was in the local public school system technically while I was there. So it wasn't a college campus, but it felt like a campus. When I say hospitalized, I'm yes. kind of just shortening it to explain that experience. Okay, but, well, good. Um, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It def definitely not like, like a medical setting hospital. It wasn't like mm -hmm. that. Um, but yeah, just as much as I abruptly went in, uh, I also abruptly came out and I abruptly went in because again, I was underwater, not really aware of anything going on in my world. I, I was very numb. I was, my, my grades were just tanking. I was just not sleeping. I was not even eating regularly. I was having trouble managing my anger and my temper, just a slew of things. I'm sure my mom and dad have their own recollection on all of that, but I I was just a mess. And basically one night, it was maybe late in an afternoon, my mom and dad wanted to talk to me. And they had been working with, I believe, my team that I was referring earlier, my doctor and my therapist and the guidance counselor in the school. Everybody was on board with this plan that a really great place for me to really get away from all of the distractions of like regular teenage life and go really be with myself and work on my health and get help that I needed was to go to this rehabilitation center. And of course I despised the idea. I was angry that my parents wanted to send me there. I did not want to be ripped from my friends, did not want to be ripped from my school. I felt like I was just being like plucked out and put in like a prison. That's how like severe it felt at the time. Um, so I very abruptly went in. It was a bad day. Sorry. I didn't know I was going to cry. It was a take bad day. Take a moment. Day. It's okay. Just take yeah. a moment. You're fine. It was a bad day. I just remember very specific memories from that day. So that's why I'm <laughs> kind of getting choked up. But it was a bad day. And my mom and dad were doing what they could do to do the best they could do for me. It was really hard to be dropped off there. And uh, yeah, I still see little scenes in my head of seeing them leave. And mm. I remember what I ate that day. It's pretty mm -hmm. amazing. Um, and so that was October 10th, 2012. It, and just as much as I was scared to go in, cause it was gonna, I felt like I was going into prison or something. It felt like that for me at the time, cause I was just so miserable. And it was a place where, the system, so to speak, that's a whole other conversation probably, but 
it's a place where they were doing the best they could is the nicest way to say it. I have no, no negative thoughts towards the staff or the way the hospital was run or things like that. There's just only so much that healthcare and especially mental healthcare can do. So it was a perfectly fine place for what they had the resources for. But it, it felt like a prison. We were very protected. There was not a lot of privacy because of concern of patients harming themselves or harming others. Um, and again, people came in with all kinds of different situations. So it was not even just depression or I had roommates with anxiety, eating disorders, trauma victims, the PTSD. I mean, like the gamut of all the awful things that people might face in their life. We showered with the door open, no privacy. So it felt very prisony. <laughs> we got one 10 minute phone call every day. I thought at the time that that seemed cruel. We're told that the reason for that is to really keep yourself focused on what you're doing here, the work you're doing here. It's rehab. It's the same way you would, I don't want to say it's the same way you would treat people recovering from drugs or something, but any focus to like outside of your recovery was possibly not going to be helpful. So 10 minute phone calls and the people that could come to visit you were a very strict select group of people. And for many patients, that was important because you wouldn't want bad influences from the past or harmful Mm -hmm. family members to come by or things like that. I had feelings like this in the hospital too, where like, I feel just extremely fortunate to have had the people and the resources that I had with my story, because I feel like I'm in the rare category of people that had the resources and abilities to be taken care of properly. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm really humbled and feel very privileged to have those things. By far in the hospital, I was the one that always got mail. I was the one that always got like solid, happy, healthy phone calls with family. Like, um, it was almost like embarrassing. I almost felt like survivor's guilt sometimes in the hospital. Our conversation shifted from abrupt entry to abrupt re-entry. Entry into hospitalization and re-entry into life before hospitalization. Re-entry. So I went in October 10th, 2012, like I said. And then I assume it must have been somewhere around November 8th, November 9th. A staff member. I just remember it was a woman. Oh my goodness. I don't even know what her role was at the center, but she basically wanted to have a private talk with me. And she was like, you're going home and we're preparing like a, it wasn't called a reintegration plan, but essentially that's what it was. It was a big fat binder of like exercises to do and things to remember to do to maintain my health and everything. And me at the time, I was just, they think I'm ready to go home. Like This is like great news, all this. And I was so excited to go back. And then I find out later on that it's not that they thought I was necessarily completely ready to get back. It's that it's all the insurance, the 30 days were up. (laughs) So that's why it was October 10th, November 10th. And so, you know, naive me was all like, Oh yeah, I'm better. And 
It's actually just because if I stayed there, my parents would be in debt. And so that's a whole other like system topic about how healthcare and mental health care specifically, because I think a lot of the world still doesn't take mental health care as seriously as other parts of your body health care. I only stayed for 30 days, but I went home with a plan and all this. And then the other big massive component of that was that I was not returning to my class. I was going to return to restart a junior year for the next year. So where I was supposed to be finishing junior year and then becoming a senior soon with my friends, I actually stayed back and did my junior year. Looking back, it was really smart for me to do that because I got a much more solid school year out of doing another year rather than like scrambling to catch back up with what everyone else is doing and where I'm supposed to be and everything. But socially, it was very hard. I never made any kind of like bold announcement or anything to tell my peers what I was doing. My close friends knew what was going on and the school obviously knew what was going on. But my average classmates that I wasn't really close with kind of just found out by accident. Oh, I guess she's just not in our class anymore. So it just was socially weird to start senior year and not really be doing all the same things with all the people Mm. that I grew up with. And then also very weird to then be at their graduation and like sing at their graduation, but I don't have a cap gown on. So just a lot of weird little things like that, but I never got any kind of like negative negativity from it. Just a lot of like maybe confusion from Mm -hmm. my class, but ultimately it ended up being one of the best things I did. I was 19 when I graduated from high school but I don't care because I got to have another solid year to do my schoolwork and I was a musical theater and an athlete student. So I got more time to do those things and I got another prom. There were perks to it, but also it was really vital for me to do that. You're like 10 years out or whatever, seven years out. You've had this experience. I'm sure in your world, whatever whether it's at work or socially. You might look around the room or meet people and you can tell they're going through this looks familiar. Then what do you do? Do you interact? I definitely, I have a very hypersensitive sense with myself, like I said earlier, but I can tell when, Others aren't, I'd say I'm probably correct almost all the time. (laughs) If I have a thought to myself, oh, this person seems a little off or, oh, they're definitely, I definitely would put money down that they're going through X, Y, Z. Yeah. Um, I can definitely remember very distinct situations and different times of my life, but maybe I remember two stories in particular. We'll start with college, just go chronologically, but I had a wonderful friend who lived in my building and she was just not well. She was very much in her room, in her bed all the time. She was crying a lot. She was very despondent and very, very numb. She just wasn't okay. And there was one time where we were hanging out and I talked with her about, I tried to like gently open the conversation by being like, I'm really sorry that you're going through things right now. And have you ever talked to anybody about it? That's usually my first go-to thing is have you ever talked to anyone that you trust about things that you're feeling or things that you're going through? And if I'm remembering correctly, she almost explicitly told me I'm 
really depressed. And I believe she told me that she had been trying to tell her family that she doesn't feel well. She hasn't felt well for a long time. And her family just did not want to have a discussion with her about mental health. There's unfortunately still in 2022, a ton of stigmas about, is it real or should people just get over it? Or, and those things make me angry. I can say it nicely because don't you think if people wanted to not feel that way, they wouldn't. Because if it was in your control, wouldn't you just wake up and stop feeling that way? My pancreas isn't working. Like, it's um, your Justin, problem. Go you get another pancreas. Work on it for crying out loud. Yeah, you know, work just on your pancreas. Pancreas <laughs> into producing insulin. But anyway, it humbled me to hear this friend in college say that that like she's telling people and no one's listening. And so I actually got her kind of turned on to being like, oh, it's okay that I feel like this. And lots of people feel like this. And I'm not sure where she took that, but I do feel pretty confident that we left certain conversations on that theme of like she was, oh, and having realizations of I'm not crazy. And you're telling me I'm not crazy. Like this is a real thing that you can go through and there's hope to feel better because obviously you feel better. I'm not sure where she's at now, but yeah, she stuck with me and she humbled me hearing about her situation. And then another person that I know, something similar where they were just also very aware that they were not well. And I went through the same thing with them. Do you have resources? Do you have people you're talking to? It didn't really go anywhere, but there's also a feeling that I get when I do too much of that, that it's, there's almost a threshold of it's human to be caring. And then there's also a threshold though, where you're like, I can be caring but maybe when it gets to this point, it's not my business anymore. I can't like micromanage somebody into being like, go get help. They don't want that anyway. If they want right. help, they have to do that for themselves. It sucks to say, but it's just true. Now a word about our sponsor, A Bridge. Record your healthcare conversations with doctors and other clinicians with A Bridge. Push the big pink button and record. Read the transcripts or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at abridge.com, A-B-R-I-D-G-E.com, or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Let me know how it went. So let me ask you a different question. So it sounds to me that part of the work that you did was to develop a toolbox of things that would be helpful. And Mm -hmm. um, you ended up with a fairly robust toolbox. I have MS and I have a toolbox and feel pretty confident that None of my tools work every time that I can usually find something that will work. And when I feel like my toolbox is really together, it's like mm-hmm. I got three things I can try. Yeah. Then I'm rich because um, stuff doesn't work. And you want the second level. 
what are some of the tools that you developed in your toolbox? Yeah, I think I first would say just generally on the toolbox topic, I, I would sum up a lot of this by saying that if there was a magic pill or like a magic spell or like a magic thing to eat, there would be no mental health issues because we would know the answer. Like, and, right. that, and I think you could say that to basically any issue or disability or illness or syndrome, or there's no perfect answers because every body is different. And then right. everybody's resources are different. But my toolbox is, I've never written down actually like a mm -hmm. list of things. I've never written down a whole list of this is everything that I do. But my toolbox, I guess, is a combination of like physical, actual things, and then also behaviors or right. refraining from certain behaviors. So um, meaning like actual physical things, does that mean like going for a run, breathing deeply? Is that um, what you mean by physical things? Physical things, I'm saying like medications. Okay. Maybe just mostly medications because a lot of okay. it is also behavioral and like action based. Medications did change everything for me. I'm actually taking much less medication than I did when I was younger. Some of it I've discussed with my doctors due to my age and my brain maturing, but also a lot of environmental factors still influence everything. I am very fortunate right now that I'm in a really stable, successful life with good friends and a boyfriend that really takes care of me and loves me a job that I'm really good in medication though still is vital. And especially for many people, I want to be careful not to preach medication as like an, a perfect situation. It's not perfect. They're going right. to come with side effects. I've taken some that, that made me gain weight. Some that made me lose too much weight. Some that made me dizzy and feel awful. And some that made it hard to wake up and so that's what right. I was talking about earlier. Medications are magical. It's great that we have that medical technology, but some aren't going to be good for you and some are going to be okay for you and some are going to help. So medication is a piece of the toolbox, but sunshine and daylight and fresh air have always been really important to me. Sometimes my loved ones, like my friends and my boyfriend, sometimes will fill like teas that I like always have the windows open and so it's so bright in here and it's like, it has to be like I don't want to feel like I'm in a cave but too much of being in the dark all the time would actually start to influence my mental health so there's that in my toolbox I don't mm -hmm. even know what that would be called I guess just like seeking, yeah, I, I, I seeking natural light but the sun is a very natural thing that our primitive bodies and brains need yeah. it's not natural for us to be in the dark all the time I'd say also something that helps is being around loved ones and family and friends when I am struggling. Pets are very powerful. Like I've had some hard times just here in our apartment now where I'm like, I'm going to go pick up the family dog, Lucy. Having Lucy around will instantly lift me up a little. So that's something that I do. I love to drink alcoholic beverages and drink alcohol and socialize. And I love to celebrate with alcohol but I am careful with it because too many times have I had too much and maybe not too much in a way. Like, oh, I like too drunk or something, but too much in that the next day. And even like days afterwards, I feel emotional effects from the depressant 
nature mm -hmm. of alcohol. Yeah. I'm careful not to drink, especially if I'm already going into it in a negative mood. I only want to touch alcohol if I'm feeling neutral or feeling really happy or feeling mm. celebratory or whatever. Right. I'm never going to drink to make myself feel better if I'm sad or if I'm angry or to escape from something. I've never had the desire to, but I've also just pledged to myself, like, I'm not going to touch that stuff because that's going to be awful for the next few days yeah. of getting through whatever I'm going through. There's all these different apps out there. Mm -hmm. you know, people say, this is for meditation. This is for social networking. This, I don't know. So is there any like virtual tools that you use? Virtual tools? Uh, not so much. I'm a traditional paper and pen girl, to be honest. So I do like to journal, especially if I'm going through tough episodes with something. Mm -hmm. um, but as for apps... I guess one that is quite relevant to my mental health and mental health for users would be Headspace. I think there's probably a lot of resources within it, but essentially it's a lot of like meditative, like narrations, music. It's kind of like podcasting. You, you just turn something on while you're trying to meditate. It'll be like guided meditations, stories that kind of help you just lull into sleep and kind of get mm -hmm. into a dream like mindset to relax there's products in there to listen to to focus and to relax and to elevate creative energy and things like that but i always almost religiously used it for sleep i would play like the relaxing nighttime featured things i ask you one more question so what change would you make for young adults with mental illness that would help them live the best life they could live? My role as a patient and someone who's been through a lot, I've always thought like I have a really unique voice that can help people by just starting the discussion, keeping the discussion healthy and accurate, helping people adjust skewed perceptions of what mental illness can mean and what it looks like. And it's not just stuffing pills down your throat and there's a lot of still nasty misperception bad perceptions out there of what it all means if the question is what i would change right yeah for, for youth i can feed you back what i've heard you say okay i think what you've talked about is you've talked about family you've talked about getting help early you've talked about hope um but if you were king for a day and you could wave your wand and something would be different that would benefit young adults with mental illness. I'm really like geared into like wishing that mental health was just better understood. And I don't know if that's something that I would have to say to the medical community or to just the general community at large, but something really big. And I, I wrote this down because it's like the theme of everything that I want to talk about most in general in life, but also in here is that treatment doesn't have a face and recovery doesn't have a face because treatment and recovery are going to be so different for everybody. Really? It's what, I you, want, what you're saying. It's not one face. One face. Yeah. 
I want to destroy any perception that this mental illness looks like this and this is how you treat it. I think that is such a, you don't do that with cancer and you don't do that with heart disease and you don't do that with MS. It's not a good way to look at health. Health and the human body are so much more complex than that. I think something a lot of people are scared of is like, maybe they don't want to talk about something that they're struggling with mentally because they're scared that they're going to get prescribed a medication or something. And while that might be something that helps many people, cognitive behavioral therapy also is really therapeutic um, and it can genuinely impact you. Also surrounding yourself with healthy family and friends and a healthy environment will impact you. I actually, in addition to what I struggle with in terms of mood, I also, for episodes in my life, in my young adulthood, mostly I suffered from panic attacks and I changed certain things in my life. I changed jobs and I, I got out of stressful situations and stressful social situations. And I didn't do that to get out of panic attacks, but since I made those changes, I haven't had panic attacks. So the environment also is really crucial as well. So any perception that like treatment looks like this, I think that's yeah. my biggest hang up. Yeah. Is that it, and, it's and not cookie are, cutter. Not cookie cutter. And it's also not, it shouldn't be intimidating because there's a dozen different ways that can help. And it's about finding what mix of all those things works with you and your situation and your body. That's brilliant. It was really nice to talk about all this. Yeah. And uh, I just celebrated actually my, my 10th, like hospital anniversary on November 10th. Yeah. And so it, I do. Congratulations. Because those days were already burned in my mind anyway. Right. Like the way a birthday or something is burned in your mind. I've just accidentally been like counting them. And I realized, like, oh my God, it's 2022, which means this is 10 years. I was not expected to graduate high school and I definitely wasn't supposed to go to college. And um, my future was super unknown. And I graduated from high school. I graduated from college. I'm in a healthy relationship. I have friends and a job and I take care of my health on my own. And a lot of it was me doing that for myself and my team and all the support I had when I was young. And it's a combination, but uh, there's, yeah, there's hope. I don't, I hope is such a cliche word. If other people who might be listening have been through certain things that sound similar to mine, it's not the end of it. It's like where you're at right now is so not the end. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been great. Oh, thanks, Annie. I appreciate it. Annie decides whether to cross a threshold, the threshold of helping. She has agency and control. Very powerful. Annie also started with a foundation of trust with her family, even if that trust took a body blow when she went into inpatient psych. Next, we will hear from Matt Neal, a high school teacher who builds belonging. High school students cross a threshold to an unfamiliar place and purposefully belong. Here's a clip from that inspiring episode. Thanks for joining me. I have a group of kids at our school called the Ambassadors running 
our new student program. About six years ago, our principal came to me and said, hey, we have this population of students in our school that are being missed. I think that they are lonely and being dropped into our school community, even though we're all very well-meaning and everything, they're not being supported. Will you do this? I said, I would love to do that work. Our group takes a heart-centered approach. We just want to scoop these kids up and bring them on board. We have 78 current members. Every student in that group is teacher-recommended for their ability to work with others, their kindness, their heart, and their willingness to improve the lives of others. When a new student comes in, gets a tour of the building, that's a detailed tour as well as the opportunity to connect with people around. They get somebody to eat lunch with, and they get a check-in at the end of the day. And those three points of contact, as opposed to no points of contact before, make the student feel welcomed into our school community. And then the goal is to have that student remain as a contact and a first friend for those students in our building. I host, write, engineer, and produce Health Hats, the podcast. Kayla Nelson provides website and social media consultation and manages dissemination. Joey Van Leeuwen supplies musical support, especially for the podcast intro and outro. I play Barry Sachs on some episodes alone or with the Lechuga Fresca Latin Band. I'm grateful to you who have the most critical roles as listeners, readers, and watchers. See the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, www.health-hats.com and my YouTube channel, D-V-A-N-L-E-E-U. Please subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. See you around the block. Thank you.